I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I am so happy to be sitting here with Julia Phillips. She's the author of Disappearing Earth, her debut novel that's set on a remote peninsula in Far East Russia, just across the way from Alaska. And we meet a cast of characters in her book who are unforgettable, I would say. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me here and saying such nice things. Um, I, it's my pleasure. <laughs> For people who may not have read your book yet, do you want to give them just a little intro? Sure. So it's a novel. I would say it's a, a literary thriller, but probably more toward literary, about two young sisters who go missing from a remote Russian community called Kamchatka, the peninsula that you mentioned, and how that disappearance affects the community around them, especially the community of women and girls around them. So it gives us the disappearance and then a year in the life of that community after the disappearances we kind of try to piece together all these different impacts and lives and experiences that illuminate what happened to the girls and sort of the culture around what happened to them. And so you go month by month and introduce us to new but interconnected characters. Yeah there's a different month for every chapter and a different sort of focus character for every month. And, and you also take us around the peninsula. Tell me how you found Kamchatka. You're, you're American. <laughs> yes, I'm very American. I have no <laughs> Russian heritage. Um, I was a Russophile way, way back in sort of childhood and teenagehood. Um, was really interested in Russian literature, really interested in Russian history and, and language and studied Russian in college and um, spent some time in Moscow. And about a decade ago, as I was graduating college, I thought, okay, there's got to be some way to combine this this writing ambition and this mm. Russia interest. So I want to set a book in Russia. I'll write a book in English about Russia. Great. So I started hunting around for a good place to set 
this this book I was going to write that yeah. I had no idea what it was going to be about. Okay. <laughs> setting first. first yes, first. setting first. Um, and because I wanted to move there to write it, I wanted to find someplace that was beautiful and uh, ideally related to the sort of Russian-America relationship or, or to American history or some way um, for me to enter it through that lens. I thought that would be helpful for me as an American. Um, someplace that was very different from Moscow, which was the place in Russia yes. where I'd spent the most time before that, ideally outside of sort of Western Russia or that European side of Russia, the side that we see the most in Armenia and we usually – think of in the American imagination when we think of Russia. Right. It's, we don't think about the, the whole East part that goes no. on and on and on. <laughs> no, we don't think of really all of sort of the Asian continent of yeah. Russia. Yeah. Um, and some place that was a little isolated, I thought that would be a good way to um, – I thought if I can find a sort of microcosm within the yeah. largest country in the world, that will be ideal. And when I learned about Kamchatka, it has all of those things and so much more. It's so beautiful. It's so isolated. It's extraordinarily um, important in sort of the history of the Cold War and yeah. uh, the Soviet sense of itself as a military nation, especially uh, a nation in opposition to America and American culture or ideals. Um, and a place that since the fall of the Soviet Union has been um, going through an extraordinarily dramatic and fascinating transition. And and I said, I want to go to that place. I want to write this book. So again, who knew what the book would be? But, <laughs> <laughs> but I said, that's where I want to do it. And so Kamchatka today is um, open to people who are not just military. I think that's a big thing, right? Yes. So during the Soviet Union, Kamchatka was a closed military territory and you weren't allowed to go there unless you had special government permission. You couldn't go there at all as a foreigner. So you and I couldn't access right. it until, oh, I don't want to presume perhaps you're a Russian sleep agent. <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> but I would say um, foreigners couldn't go there until the fall of the Soviet Union. And now it's open. And now it's open. But did you – you were able to go there unimpeded? <laughs> <laughs> I I encountered um, only the usual impediments that one might encounter when you're trying to go to a place that has no roads that go to it that right. is 16 time zones away from where you live um, and you're trying to move there for a year. So a lot of – I, for example, um, I went there on a writing grant and right. I applied Fulbright, for – Fulbright. Yeah. Um, yes, which was – I couldn't – recommend highly enough. It's always a funny thing to say. Like I couldn't recommend a Fulbright highly enough, but actually I think- That's um, a great humble brag. I love it. <laughs> well, like, the best thing about the Fulbright is that, for example, um, uh, I think in the writing community, at least in the writing community I'm in, um, it's not very common to apply for mm -hmm. because our idea is that it is, it must be very elite and prestigious. But for example, when I applied for the Fulbright, my chances of getting it a Fulbright to Russia were one in four. And wow. right. And so I think when we think about like what we usually apply for, my, when I apply to a contest at a literary magazine, my right. chances are one in 10,000. <laughs> and I do that, you know, or what, one in 3,000? How many? Like it's so it's, incredibly it, slim. It's slim. 
And I didn't know that about the Fulbright, but I also feel like you're selling yourself oh. short. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I will say it was life changing for me. It was Amazing. great. I applied two years in a row. Um, and that was one of the big impediments of getting there, getting a sort of visa, which I got through the Fulbright that would let me stay there for a year that would give me sort of flexibility of getting basically a, a long-term non-resident visa was really huge. And Kamchatka does still have some restrictions around it, some sort of – there are areas of Kamchatka that are still closed. The peninsula itself is not closed, but there are sort of cities and military bases there oh. that are still closed. For example, the in the first chapter of this book, yes. the girls are on a beach – in the in the capital city of Kamchatka, a place called Petropavlovsk, Kamchatsky, and they're looking. I was not going to try to. <laughs> don't, don't worry. <laughs> I'm sure I myself am mangling the pronunciation. The city is on a bay, and they're looking across the bay at a different city. Right. And that different city is called Volyuchinsk, and it's a closed military city. So that oh. is sort of this remnant of Soviet closure that remains. But um, but I was lucky to go there in a time that, you know, the majority of Kamchatka is open still and I, I think has no prospect of being closed again. And I encountered, I would say, higher scrutiny than I have in other places sure. in Russia. <laughs> it was, for instance. For instance, oh, um, <laughs> my impression was that uh, people both out of it being, you know, it's a much smaller community. It's a community where infrastructure is low and therefore mm -hmm. a sort of neighborliness is high for common safety. And so right. people make it their business to know who you are and where you are and what you're doing and where you're going. And and that was something that was unusual for me as someone who was coming from New York right. and someone <laughs> who um, had spent most of my time up until that point in Russia, in, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg and sort of right. these these large cities. That was really unusual from a kind of neighbor perspective. I Some of my neighbors were, um, you know, FSB agents or it's still right. a highly militarized right. territory. So people really made it clear that they knew where I was, they knew where I was going, and <laughs> they would case. continue to know where I was and where I was going. And, and it's interesting because in, um, I think, maybe the second chapter of the book, and, and, and but this is a theme throughout the book, is that many of the Russian people who live in Kamchatka complain that now that the borders are open and the people can come in willy-nilly, they yeah. make it sound, <laughs> that it's less safe, it's less, less contained, which is both a xenophobic way of looking at it, but also understandable in that this place was really, really remote for quite a long time. Yeah. And it's, it's fascinating because it still is, of course, um, geographically right. and from an infrastructure point of view, so remote. And yet among the folks, especially I would say European Russians, that is people of sort of Slavic Russian heritage right. who present to my American eyes as white, whose uh, roots on the peninsula are firmly sort of 20th century Soviet assignment. Like, you know, perhaps their parents or grandparents were posted there with the mm. military or or as part of efforts of bringing up sort of military bases there as, as teachers, as engineers, folks who were there to support the naval base's development, those people would experienced the Soviet Union on Kamchatka as a time of extraordinary wealth and stability. Right. And it's extremely understandable to want to go back to that time 
when you were on top and when you were taken care of, when you had the mm-hmm. faith that you would be taken care of. I, I joke sometimes that there, um, some of the feeling in this book is like uh, folks who want to make Kamchatka great again. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, there's definitely, you know, there was effectively a wall around this peninsula created by the state for a certain period. And there are many characters in this book who out of their history, I would say often out out of their ethnic or class advantages, would like to return to that time. They'd like to put that wall back up. Sure. And and even even before um, the fall of communism, there were there were natives there, but they just it, it seems like in the book, at least, that uh, there is more interaction between the standard European Russians and and the natives. In this. I think that's how some. I think that's definitely how some characters, uh, especially in the city, see it. So mm. there's there's a strong, you know, there have been indigenous people on Kamchatka since I want to say six for sixteen thousand years or ten. Um, mm. There are, is a group of folks, um, the Koryak people who are indigenous Kamchatkans who have been there for, you know, millennia. And so certainly during the Soviet Union and before the Soviet Union and and before the czars, you know, before, right. before <laughs> when, when yeah. Slavs were sort of tribal people moving through the European mm-hmm. lands. And, and those people had an experience, indigenous people in Kamchatka had an experience of Soviet times and of post-Soviet times now that is in some ways similar to the European-Russian experience and in some ways different. Mm. There are fewer restrictions on travel through the peninsula now. So there are people who are traveling from the city to the villages or from the villages to the city that perhaps wouldn't have previously. But And the villages are mostly up north. Like yeah. tundra land. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to put it. It's inter- Kamchatka is quite interesting because it is the size of California. It's very right. big. But it only has a single city in it. And that city is is Petropavlovsk. It's the city around right. the bay that has you know about 300,000 people in it. You know what I think? I think that's the population of all of Kamchatka. Ah. I think it's more like 200,000. So, so most of the people that live on the peninsula live in this one city. One. And there are very few roads on the peninsula. And so there are sort of southern and central villages that are accessible by road. There are northern villages that are accessible <laughs> okay. by like helicopter and dog sled. Mm. Um, but it remains that, for example, when I was in Petropavlovsk, when I was in the city and I would say to folks, I'm going to this village for, you know, a month or for a summer or for a lot of people who had grown up there and whose parents had grown up there would say to me, I've, I've never been to that village in my life. Like right. I've never been there, which both shocked me and was made total sense because I say as someone who spent my whole life kind of in and around New York, there are lots of places in upstate New York I've never <laughs> been in my <laughs> right. life. Of course. And there are, there are highways that go there. It's it's a little bit easier to get to and still. And and certainly traveling in the wintertime with snow on the ground is is nearly impossible by land. That's yes. Sometimes, you know, funnily enough, I would say traveling in the fall and spring with mud on the ground oh, is nearly harder. impossible by land. Traveling in the winter with snow on the ground can be a lot easier because then you have like an ice road that you can travel. Right, right, right. But 
point being, I mean, so <laughs> I can talk about Kamchatka for like 25 years. <laughs> I love it. Um, you've, you've created this kind of ideal scenario for a mystery mm. because it's, it's as closed room kind of as you can get. Yeah. It's a huge, huge closed room. Part of the, the reader's experience of trying to figure out what's happened to these girls is figuring out the question, where could they be in this very set, limited place? But it is the size of California. But like, are they, can they be near, near the volcano? Are they in the yeah. mountains? <laughs> are they in the forest? Like and the the environment not only plays such a big part in the story, but it, it, it impedes them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so you wanted to focus on women, the women of Kamchatka. Yeah, it's fun. Like thinking about what you just said, there's so much of the book that is particularly Kamchatka and shaped by the setting. And yet I think the events of the book in another way are are so much just about women's experiences the world over, or at least how I see, how I yeah. see them. Yeah. When you were there, were gender roles, were you able to watch these things? Like, were you a an anthropologist when you were there <laughs> or were you extrapolating? What were you, yeah. When I was there, I was a very young, very eager, uh, aspiring novelist. So I, <laughs> I brought no sort of anthropological, uh, more scholarly expertise uh-huh. to it. <laughs> but I also was there as someone who is in a woman's body and identity. Sure. Um, and whose experience of life is very much informed by that identity, that that I was coming from a, a context of patriarchy in the U.S., I mm-hmm. think. Where, yeah, I'll agree. <laughs> <laughs> agree, or, agree or disagree. Um, that's certainly, yes, I. that's how I see it, certainly. And um, I was going to a, a place that was patriarchal in a different way. It was still a patriarchy, but right. the way that manifested or the sort of um, conversation around that or the the habits or customs around that were a little bit different. And yet the prevailing kind of hierarchies that were set up were the mm-hmm. same. And so I, I was observing, but I was also unable to just observe. I was experiencing because I, right. I am someone who is inside and participating in and hurt by that yeah. that power structure. It was very interesting. I assume that any case that involves missing children and a single mother, that mother is going to get a lot of scrutiny, even if it's not in a small place like Kamchatka. Yeah, I I think that's true. I think this has always been a really interesting thing to me and something that makes a lot of sense, but the ways in which blame or analysis or assignment of responsibility are also ways for us to maintain control. Sure. So there are, for example, there's a there's a mother character in the second chapter mm-hmm. who who observes the dynamic of the um of the sisters who mm-hmm. went missing and of their single mom. And that character says, oh, well, you know, the problem there was that those kids weren't properly supervised, that they don't have two parents in the home, that you know, their mother had to work and therefore she wasn't watching out for them. And that's why this happened. But that'll never happen to me because mm-hmm. I have in comparison this. And I think we all do that yes. in so many ways, both sort of explicit and 
implicit, just like these assumptions that we make, these ways that we try to exert control over our circumstances so we can say, well, they did this and this and this, and if I don't do that, then that'll never happen to me. Or even I did this and this and this, but as long as I don't repeat those things, then I'll be fine. I'll be kept safe. Right. As if there were any way to prevent a tragedy from happening. I mean, I right. guess there are a few there are a few things you could do, but uh well, I mean, none of us are are free. <laughs> no, I think it's a lot easier for us to say I can control my world and I can keep myself safe by doing these certain actions than it is to say some people might hurt me at any time yeah. randomly. <laughs> yep. And there's nothing I can do to stop or control that. And that's really terrifying. Sure and is. and so we try to Control what is uncontrollable. And to me, that is what was one of the most exciting tasks of the book, of the structure of the book, as it moves through these different women's experiences and lives, thinking about both the ways that they're harmed by this sort of everyday violence around them and the ways that they perpetuate this everyday violence around them and and sort of uh, they are not only or – victims or survivors. They're also perpetrators and they're also saviors. They're people that try and they can be all those things in, in one. Of we course, are the, all those we are, things Yes, one. absolutely. And uh, few women are not complicit in some way. Yes. In, in the, yeah. But, but I do think that um, we are attuned to this now in a way that perhaps the women of Kamchatka were not. Is that fair? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how attuned we are to it or not attuned to it. And I don't know. <laughs> and I don't know how attuned folks there are to it and not attuned to it. I one of the things that was challenging and fascinating for me while being there was realizing that I am unable to neutrally perceive sure. what is going on. That, that, for example, if I'm having a conversation with someone there about feminism, mm-hmm. the words I'm using, the way I'm hearing them, the way I'm listening to them, it's all shaped around these cultural expectations I have, right. these, this vocabulary I have around, you know, what is progressive politics? What is mm-hmm. conservative politics? What is believing in equality? What is you know, what is believing in equity? Like what does that look like? What are the words? And if folks aren't using those words – that are out of my sort of American mind right. frame, it's really hard for me to evaluate or perceive what they're saying. Yes. And that was a, a constant challenge of being there, was being able to listen and absorb and process without the imposition of my own narrative on it. And eventually I had to just get to a point where I was like, I don't think I can process without right. the imposition of my own narrative. Like our folks in Kamchatka, are the women I met in Kamchatka more or less feminist than than I and my circle are here? Are they more or less eloquent about their experience of oppression than I and the folks I know are here? I don't know. (laughs) All I know is like I tried to record them and write things down and and – yeah, and 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 of course there was a language barrier because you told me. I mean, you speak Russian well, but the last time I told you <laughs> <laughs> that it seemed like you were more than proficient, you you laughed. <laughs> I was thinking about that on the way over here. Funnily enough, I uh, would say I'm not fluent in Russian. I would say my most, my strongest Russian ever was advanced Russian. I would say speak Russian well was the best I'd ever got. So, which was helpful in many ways because often folks. Um, 
would have to repeat themselves or have to explain. Sure. But And that was really great because – but it was also hard because there were so many things that were subtle or unexplained or unexplainable that were difficult for me to perceive. And so the – what is reflected in this book is my American processing of what sure. I saw there. You know, it is not Absolutely. at all like a sort of, well, I can't even think of something. I was going to say like a like a documentary perception. Right. Of, but no, even no, a documentary is so filtered. You come with your own yeah. expectations and perceptions. Let's talk a little bit about structure because, Ooh. I mean, yeah. I, <laughs> so so there are a lot of moving parts in this in this novel. There are a lot of characters to keep track of, a lot of plot lines, a lot of timelines. How did you do it? <laughs> How? Um, I had a Google Calendar for the book where I marked all the events that were happening. I am obsessed with Scrivener, the yeah. the processing the word processing program that helps you organize sort of little details. And a lot of sort of um, conspiracy theorist like pin boards with lines. <laughs> And I worked on it for a long time. And so with the drafting over and over and over again and with the benefit of sort of peer workshops, being able to to meet up with friends in my neighborhood and writer friends and give this to them and have them read it, I there were so many moving parts. But after a while, it became clear, like, this is how many moving parts there are in play. Okay, and this is how they to fit it. together. You know, that the, like yes. there are this many characters, there are this many days, there are this, you know, this right. is what is happening when. Right. That was nice. Uh, that's, that sounds very helpful. <laughs> so tell me, like, what would – a, a typical week in your Google calendar look like? Well, some weeks were very busy and some right, weeks weren't. Right. Um, I tried to uh, mark on the, so we said before that every chapter is a different month. Yes. I tried to mark every event in those chapters on a Google calendar. So um, we would have the, sort of the, the most of these chapters take place over, I would say a day. Mm-hmm. They're, they're focused on on one day. Yes. And then they might have like, you know, they might mention in that, oh, this happened a week ago right. or this happened two weeks ago. Right. And so I tried to sort of mark every event mm. on a calendar so I understood where they were overlapping and when. I also tried to make it clear. The, the Google Calendar was really helpful because then I could see when when characters might intersect or when they were in the same places at the same time or when right. they weren't in the same places at the right. same time or just have like a very specific grounded understanding of who was moving around where. And I think it got a little bit nitty gritty sometimes, but, you know, it would say things like, and then I I tried from there also to say, you know, when, how old is every, it's like I had like a table, how old is every character? When (laughs) were they born? When were their kids born? When did they meet their partners? When did they divorce their partners? Mm. When did they, you know, like every sort of um, major life event for them, I tried to mark also to understand who was where, when, and why, which was really helpful. <laughs> it was funny, too, in the book that sometimes um, – oh, that's so nitty-gritty. It's hardly worth mentioning, I just realized. So I was just going to talk about one of the ways the Google Calendar ended up being really helpful <laughs> was that the girls disappear on August 4th. Yes. Very early in the month. And so – Sometimes people would say, oh, it was a month ago. Or sometimes people would say, like, oh, it was if they were at the end of a month, for example, if they were right. at the end of March, then they would say, oh, it's, you know, God, I can't even calculate what seven months ago. Right. Or eight months ago. Or they would like start sort of collapsing. The beginning of August would seem to them like the end of July. You know what I mean? It would Absolutely. see like by the end of August, already a whole month has gone by. And that was helpful to have everything marked out on a calendar to sort of better understand how people are thinking of this or how yeah. long ago it was or. 
<laughs> That's so dull, time markers. But it was very grounding to me to work on to kind of specifically understand where folks are and when. Yeah, and, and I don't I don't think that's dull. And I also... Um, Maris, you're perfect. <laughs> I also, I, I love the idea. Um, I know a little bit about your writer's group. Mm. And if you could talk a little bit about that, because I, I think it sounds like you all helped each other write wonderful things. Well, I, I am, I would say, generally obsessed with writer's groups. So I am... Like trying to get in as many as possible. <laughs> so I have, I have, are you thinking about the one with that Mira created? Yes. Okay. So Mira is, Mira Jacob, episode one. Yes. Yes. <laughs> is probably the smartest, most compassionate, most fantastic human being on this earth. Okay. Yeah, um, fair. I, I, I buy it. I buy so it. talented. So brilliant. Yes. And she and I – she's talked about this a little bit, that she and I and a brilliant writer named Brittany Allen, Brittany K. Mm. Allen, were in uh, a writing group together that was pretty horrendous. Oh, no. What makes say. a writer's group horrendous? Um, a lot of a lot of rage. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. And I think a lot of envy, especially envy of – Oh, sure. Of Mira. I would say. So I don't feel like I'm talking out of turn there because Mira's talked about this, right. you know, publicly many times before because it was sort of connected with the development of her brilliant book, Good Talk. Mm -hmm. So after that, she put together a group, an incredible writing group where she was like, I'm going to put together, she's like, you know, Julia, you and Brittany, like, come along and I'm going to put together a superstar experience Ooh. here. And she put together this group that, she calls that we call the resistance that's just like <laughs> oh my god the people in this group are so brilliant such extraordinary teachers and thinkers and writers and we meet every so often like at mira's or at a different person's house and get to read each other's work and benefit from the extraordinary company of these people like it, it's so amazing and it really makes me think about well, it's funny. It's very consistent with the book. Everything makes me think about like the, the extraordinary value of a community, mm. um, especially a generous hearted community in which folks are so determined to do good in the world and add goodness mm. to the world. Everyone in this group is is just really, really committed to working for the good of their community and, and adding something extraordinary to the world through their work. And it's so meaningful. Mira Jacobs is the best. That's wonderful. The resistance is the best. <laughs> and that amount of generosity finds its way back to your work, I would say. I mean, that that's very nice to think of that generosity coming <laughs> yes. back to my like I certainly feel that, that that getting to witness and being lucky enough to receive that generosity in other writers and readers has been as someone who's just starting out in their writing career mm -hmm. as someone who's you know first book came out what two months ago <laughs> <laughs> the generosity of others is something I'm thinking about all the time these oh. days it's really extraordinary I love it <laughs> Tell, okay, tell me, tell me what other books you're reading. Speaking about being generous, oh who my do you want to 
Shout out. Speaking about brilliant writers, I made a list. I made a list because I wanted to make sure. Good. Okay. Sabrina and Karina by Kali oh, Fajardo yes. Einstein. Have you read this? I have not. And Mira Mira had already suggested it. So okay, good. It is on my list. Okay. I feel very excited to be following in Mira's suggestion footsteps. <laughs> it's so goddamn good. <laughs> what, what, remind me what it's about. It is a collection of short stories right. all about Latina women of indigenous descent in and around Colorado. It is women's voices, but whole women in that their experience of sexuality, of class, of race, of ethnicity, of all of this, it's a portrayal of life as a woman that is so specific and so grounded mm. in the body. And I, when I read it, I felt like I have never felt so much the experience of being in a body as I feel when I'm reading this wow. book. I thought it was unbelievable. Kali's a genius. Okay. She also has a very good Instagram. <laughs> That's also important to know, and that will be included in the show notes for sure. Go to her Instagram. It's very joyous. It's, like, so good. But did you read Women Talking? Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. I think it's one of the best books I've ever read in my entire life. I would agree. I thought it was perfect. It shook me. Agreed. (laughs) I When I got to the end of that book, I was on the subway, and I started crying, and then I cried, like, sunscreen into my eyes, and it was burning so bad, and I was like, I deserve this. Yes. It's like, Um, this is the pain of being human. And again, I I think it's similar in that this is an isolated area. Mm. The patriarchy there is stronger than this is is bad. It's like textbook definition of. Textbook. But the feeling of the women is so universal. And and joyous, I think. Joyous and survival. So a sort of um, triumphant feeling of like. Yes, we may be hurt, we may hurt each other, and yet we survive. And in that survival, there is extraordinary beauty, like beauty beyond. There's laughter. Oh, God. Singing. Everyone's always singing. Everybody's singing. (laughs) Yeah. It's so so good. I'm so so glad you're into that because also I feel like it's a a love it or hate it. It's not for everyone. I will say that, but. I'm obsessed. Me too. Did you, okay, did you read Putney by? No, I would like to read that too. Tell me more. Okay. (laughs) My cousin recommended this to me. Shook me, talk about being shaken by a book, shook me to the core. And I'm really curious about why I, I wish I, I wish more folks were reading it, or at least more folks in my community or folks I was talking to. Hmm. I feel like it's, it's just such an extraordinary work. It is basically a, a narrative of, I would say, uh, I mean, in very flattening terms, I would say uh, a perpetrator, a victim, and a witness. Mm. But it's so much more complicated than that. It's a story about uh, a woman who, in her own mind, had an affair with a a family friend when she was, I would say, a preteen, like very young, and he was in his 30s. And then as she grows up and becomes a mother to a child who then, you know, is is the age that she was when mm. she was in this relationship. She And she reconnects with a friend of her youth who had, you know, a very different experience of what that was like. She is renegotiating her own memories and her own experience mm. and her own trauma and seeing, like, this is so different than how I thought it was. And also then engaging in conversations and, and encounters and scenes with this man who also – has this narrative he's telling himself about that experience and, and how beautiful it was and how of romantic course. it was and what a special connection it was. 
And and there is so much, again, compassion in this book and nuance and exploration of what it means to hurt others or to be hurt or to claim hurt or to push away the experience of being, you know, to say mm. like, actually, I was not hurt. I'm okay. Right. It's so rich and interesting. It has so much to say about forgiveness. I, I, this book is unbelievable. Also, it's a beautiful cover. <laughs> <laughs> that, that counts. It matters. This is always the most important stuff, yeah, what things absolutely. look like. <laughs> <laughs> well, Disappearing Earth, also beautiful cover. Oh, my God. Um, obsessed with that cover. And I... I'm so happy to have gotten to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Maris. Yay. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.